Over the uh, last few weeks, um, we've been looking at a series called Surprised by Jesus, where we have uh, been looking at what Jesus had to say and how when he said it, and even today, often what he said totally turned on its head the expectations and the, uh, the assumptions of those people that heard him. And it's the same for us. And so we've looked at what he had to say about morality and how you can live a moral life. And John spoke to us about uh, the mission that Jesus had was totally what people didn't expect. And I'm going to talk actually quite briefly tonight. You might be glad to hear a little bit about community and the way Jesus approached community because we're going to go into a time of prayer. So when John emailed me, I... Uh, copied half of my talk and clicked delete, so that was fine. So No, I hadn't written it yet. So, uh, yeah, so I'm going to talk about community. So I want to read you a quote from C.S. Lewis, and he wrote this in 1944. I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods, and in many men's lives at all periods, between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the inner ring and the terror of being left outside. This inner ring offers the delicious knowledge that we are the people who know. A desire simply to be on the inside, whatever that inside may be, is a powerful motivator that propels us in all sorts of ways and generates a host of different sins. And what uh, Lewis was addressing there is that inner desire that I think we all have to make ourselves feel better than other people around us. I'm not, I'm not like them. I don't behave that way. I don't uh, parent my children like them. I don't act like they do when they're out. I don't spend my money like they do. There's always that temptation, isn't there, to demonize others to make ourselves feel better about how we live. We want to be in the inner ring. It's probably why gossip can be so tempting because it's that chance to know something that other people don't know, maybe. That, that chance to feel like I'm important, you know. I think social media, more than ever, has led us into a place where there's such tribalism in, in our politics, in our culture. It's us and them. Uh, it's, I don't know, voting yes or no to Brexit. It's Labour or Conservative. Whatever it is, it's, you've, you've got to be in a group. And if you're in the group, you've got to, you, you know exactly who's not not in your group. And when we read about the life of Jesus, we read that he had some interesting things to say to those people that thought they were in the inner circle. And he also had some interesting things to say to the people that were getting told that they weren't in the inner circle. Uh, An author called Dane Ortland says this, we find that Jesus' community is counterintuitive Those whom one would expect to be in are excluded, and those whom one would expect to be out are included. The inner ring is inverted. So when we read the Gospels, we are presented with a really stark warning. I think it's a bit like a sort of bucket of cold water that gets thrown over us to make us wake up when we find ourselves categorizing people as in and out. In Jesus' day, there were clear social markers and standards that set people apart from others. Even within the Jewish faith, there was very strict laws about who was clean and unclean. 
And I don't think anything's changed today like I've been talking about. I think whether it's wealth, whether it's your social media following, whether it's how you vote, your appearance, how you dress, what music you listen to, all of these things can be used to erect barriers between who's in the in crowd. And Jesus smashes it down, thankfully, with a sledgehammer. An author called Paul Tournier said this, There indeed is a reversal. God prefers the poor, the weak, the despised. What religious people have difficulty admitting is that he prefers sinners to the righteous. He prefers sinners to the righteous. And I feel like when I first read that, I went on a journey. I was like, that doesn't sound right. And then I went, oh no, it's a massive relief. It's a massive relief because that's what I am. I'm a sinner. And he prefers sinners to the righteous. And I'm always struck by that in the Gospels that sinners loved him. Sinners loved Jesus. The outcasts loved being with him. And can't the church sometimes feel a million miles away from that? Or at least the perception of the church can feel a million miles away from that. Sinners loved Jesus. So with, with Christmas fast approaching, I'm going to just really quickly dive into a passage in Luke where we see the events of Christmas being prophesied by an angel, Gabriel. Uh, and we're going to look at the reaction of two people, two very different people. Uh, just to say on the angel, I don't know if anyone here has seen an angel. Anyone seen an angel or thought they've seen an angel? Go and be brave. No one? Yeah, John thinks he's seen an angel. All right. I think I've seen an angel. I was... I could tell you the story afterwards if you want me to ask you. But a funny thing was my parents came up last weekend and my mum was putting our eldest to bed and Layla went, she asked my mum, had she ever seen an angel? She went, no. And she went, Nana, you're 67 and you've never seen an angel. <laughs> Which I just love that sort of, just that childlike faith that of course you, you would have done. So uh, I'll just reveal my mum's age. Uh, anyway, so um, Luke 1 and we're going to start in verse 5. It's a bit of a chunk, but we'll go for it. Okay. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. <laughs> I always think that, but 
I am Gabriel. I think, I think he stands a bit, maybe he's a bit stern at that point. I stand in the presence of God. <laughs> That's a great calling card. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. A.K.A. listen, listen to me. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. That would be a great parenting thing if you could just, you will be silent until you do as I know. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Now we're going to jump forward to verse 26 in the same chapter. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and you will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Amen. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So, we have two stories here of the angel Gabriel paying a little visit to someone. And I think Luke tells it like this to contrast the two stories. So there's quite a few similarities first. So both Zechariah and Mary are visited by Gabriel. We read that both of them are troubled initially by the visit. Both are assured and comforted not to be afraid. Both are informed of a son that will be born to them and are told what to name them. Handy. <laughs> Especially, it would be even handier today when people name their children after Game of Thrones characters. And both are told that he will be great and will have a special divinely ordained role. And both question this angelic pronouncement. And it's that last point that I'm going to really briefly just focus on. Because both of them question Gabriel, but in response, Zechariah is struck dumb and Mary's not. And even their responses sound quite similar. Zechariah says, how shall I know this? And Mary says, how will this be? How shall I know this and how will this be? And I want to say this. There's a big difference. The first is a demand for proof. And the second is sheer wonder. A demand for proof and sheer wonder. Zechariah questions how he will know that what Gabriel says will happen has happened Whereas Mary marvels at the wondrous promise of God to her. And later on we see that Gabriel explains that Zechariah's punishment was due to him not believing. And so in this story we are already getting a direct insight into their hearts and how our response to God in our lives can differ. 
Because this contrast between the two of them, the, the way they were two treated, would have trashed all of the social expectations of, of the day. Zechariah had everything going for him, and Mary had nothing. Zechariah was male in a deeply male-orientated society. He was old. Mary was young. He was a priest and a religious elite. She was a commoner who was soon become, going to become a pregnant teenager. He would have been financially well-off. Mary was poor. Zechariah was married to a woman from the line of Aaron, and Mary wasn't even married at all. You can see the difference here. The long list of things in Zechariah's column that would have made him think, well, he'll be the one that God will speak to and he will respond in the right way. And so we would expect a certain type of response based on who they were. But Zechariah's response lacked faith and Mary's response was dripping in it. So what does this tell us about how we view ourselves and how do we view others this Christmas? Because so often our eyes are drawn to the markers of success in others, socially, economically. What draws God's eyes? And do we need to ask him to give us his eyes when we look at people? Dane Ortland says, the glad heart of God is drawn to those whom the world holds at arm's length. The glad heart of God is drawn to those whom the world holds at arm's length. Mary would have been held at arm's length. Zechariah would have been in the inner circle. Yet it was Mary's faith that we are still reading about 2,000 years later. Who do we hold at arm's length? Who is God calling us to reach out to? Who this Christmas do we need to seek reconciliation with? Who are the people that we have deemed too sinful, too angry, too lost, too comfortable for God to reach them this Christmas? You see, Jesus was both wildly exclusive and wildly inclusive all at the same time. He was clever like that. Wildly inclusive and wildly exclusive. Because he preached again and again that the only way to the Father was through him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's very exclusive. Yet amazingly, he said anyone could come and say yes to his invitation. Inclusive and exclusive. And so we want to be a community that's wildly inclusive. So people can meet the wildly exclusive love of God in their own lives. So we're going to move into that time of prayer. So John, if you want to come and join me, I think you're sort of doing it in a team effort with Mike and Joe as well. So um, Jojo, if you want to come up as well, that'd be great. And so we want to go for it. We really want to go for it tonight. I think uh, we had a prayer time at Marley Hill this morning and, and I just it struck me that I think one of the biggest challenges we have in the West is indifference. I think we're just, you know, on the whole, very comfortable. And I think the invitation for us is to let's stir something up. Let's stir up our hearts for, for prayer for, for this Christmas. Because, you know, in the new year, we could look back and we can say X number of people came and we gave out X number of mince pies. But 
let's get to January and have some real kingdom stories about what, what happened. So go for it. Thank you. Thank you. I need to go through all the I'm John bits. Um, I wrote down, I was making some notes of what Tom said. And one of the things I wrote down, just then, God uh, is drawn to those we hold at arm's length. And I was just thinking, I was out um, giving out leaflets this afternoon and not putting them through letterboxes. I went past the social club down the road, I think it's the old Comrades Club, and there was two guys coming out, and I thought, no. Uh, I was going to walk all and I thought, no, go, John. So I went, and uh, the first one, I, I offered him the leaflet, and, uh, and he took it and looked at it, and I said a few words about it, and he said, fine, thank you. The next one was standing at the door, and I went to him, and I said, have you got any kids? He says, yeah. He says, well, we've got this nativity thing in the park. And, oh, he said, yeah. He says, I'll put this notice up in the club for everyone to see. And I thought, wow, that was good. It was a real, I was, wasn't expecting the positive response. And we just need to just realize that the response is often more positive than we think. Um, there used to be a, a poster at Christmas that said, Jesus is the reason for the season. But that's strictly speaking not true. <laughs> um, God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. The reason for the season is the people out there. And you and me, we were the reason for the season. Why Jesus came, why God sent his son. So tonight we're praying for people Really, I mean, we'll pray about our services and for the preachers and all the rest, but really we want to, we want to be really urgent in our prayer for people out there. Um, um, uh, you know, 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, to, writing to Timothy says, preach the word, in other words, tell the good news about Jesus, preach the word, be urgent in season and out of season. And, and we just, I think there's, we need to discover an urgency in our prayer, a desperation in our prayer for that world that's out there. So we're going to pray, and uh, I'm going to just kick things off. Um, and we're sort of following the events um, chronologically uh, that we're going to be doing over Christmas. But um, don't feel that you have to pray about these things. We just want the Holy Spirit to lead you in this and lead you in the praying. So um, we're just going to begin. Well, let me just pray first. Father, I thank you for your amazing love of the world. I thank you that you sent your son. I thank you that he gave his life. He, he died that horrible death on the cross and took all our sin upon himself. We cannot imagine that. But you did that for us, and we want others to discover the joy of knowing you just as we have discovered that. And Father, I don't want to tell these people here how to pray or what to pray tonight. We just invite your Holy Spirit yeah, to lead us in our praying, to pray the things that are on your heart. And as we were singing earlier, Lord, put your heart in ours, put your love in our hearts all that we need for this Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, next Sunday is the first event, and that's uh, at uh, 
here, the Revival Carol Service. So uh, let's just pray for that and pray around that for a few minutes. Just You can get into two or three people together. Uh, and we're just going to take a few minutes to pray about that. Pray for those who are leading worship, which is Tim and Sam are going to be leading worship there. You can pray for them and just pray for the presence of God and all the things that God leads you to. Okay, let's pray.